Once Mary invited me inside, things escalated quickly. My interest in learning more about this woman pushed my ADHD hyperfocus into hyperdrive. Intrigued by future possibilities, I took full advantage of this opportunity to become closer to Mary. Hopeful to find more common ground between us in order to deepen the relationship, I returned the next day and the next and the next. Mary's smile welcomed me back each time. Question the reality of promises we've made. I'm not asking for forever for the sweet things you could say. It's because we're good together that I'm asking you to stay. Chapter 30. The Werewero Fire I don't know where the cats are, McGregor said, while directing the flow of friends who had come to help remove things from the house. If I lose this house, I'll lose everything, she said. Slow, Telegram Tribune, July 23, 1985 I settled into my new relationship by moving into Mary's house as soon as possible. Mary lived in a small house on 40 acres in the middle of a neglected oak woodland. Giant oak trees surrounded the house. 
Seasonal grasses covered the ground, as well as acorns and small new oak trees and lots of dirt. This place was beautiful. I was intrigued with how to make the outside more amenable to spending time outdoors. My first project was to expand the little front stoop Mary and I sat on during our party. I built a redwood deck 40 feet long and 20 feet wide, even adding built-in benches to the outer edges. The design stage went smoothly, but the implementation plan slowed due to lack of income. I returned from town in the evening with two or three pieces of wood on top of my vet pack, keeping a handle on expenses. Still, the deck progressed. In March 1985, my veterinary services expanded into small animal medicine when I opened a clinic in Paso Robles. Lori and her dad were instrumental in this. Lori joined with her horse trainer, Linda, to persuade me to open a small animal clinic on her dad's property. Linda would live in the apartment above the clinic, and Lori would operate a horse tack business out of the corner of the bottom floor. I was initially hesitant to do this because I had little interest in treating small animals, plus the additional cost of paying rent on the building and monthly utility bills would make finances difficult. Lori and Linda suggested the rent would be paid quickly because of the extra business generated. I eventually agreed, and designed the interior of the building drawing out a waiting area, the business office, an exam area, a treatment area, surgery, and a lab. When I opened the clinic in March, the inside was still incomplete and would have been unacceptable for small animal veterinary use by today's standards. The floor was unpainted concrete and the cabinets had not been put in. One of my first clients was a friend from the Paso Robles JCs, a lawyer in town. I remember he brought his cat in for some problem and the only flat surface available was a dresser I set in the future lab area. Next to the small house she was living in, Mary had a barn where we delivered New Moon. I cleaned out one of the stalls and filled the room with wood tools. Now I could build the cabinets I needed for the clinic. My high school woodworking classes came in handy. I felt comfortable working with wood and making these things. Plus I made them just the way I wanted at a cheaper cost than buying prefab cabinets. Woodworking was a satisfying endeavor for me and I was able to use all of the techniques I learned in high school. Once the office was more functional, an epiphany came over me when I realized that small animal stuff became a lot more personal for me, and people were seeking me out. At Dr. Brandt's office, I never assumed a client was there because of me. Now it was different. These people were calling to make an appointment with me as the primary doctor. I became a lot more interested in small animal medicine because of this new personal validation. Besides working piecemeal on the front desk, I explored the hills surrounding the house. Mary and I ventured into these hills on horses, but the chaparral was thick, and it was tough to get anywhere without the long branches of the chaparral whipping in our faces and legs. Also, Mary grew irritated at my style of riding horses. We always started off as a group, but because she preferred to keep her horse at a walk while I needed to trot, we usually ended up riding quite far apart. Every time Mary caught up, I charged down and up another hill. After too many times being left behind, she told me she didn't want to ride with me anymore. I exercised by jogging up Werewero Road three days a week. Mary's two Springer Spaniels, Bob and Tilly, excitedly volunteered to come along. After a few excursions, the two dogs anticipated the run, milling about and barking at me as soon as they saw me set my coffee down and bend over to put my running shoes on, feeding on the other's excitement until both were wound up into a giant frenzy. When I opened the front door, they flew outside, running around me, barking madly as we made our way to the road. One morning, I opened the door and Bob and Tilly charged out. I trotted towards the road, but we didn't have a gate at the time, until he ran right into the street just as a fellow driving a drilling truck made his way past our driveway. The vehicle hit Tilly and killed her instantly. The guy stopped immediately in the middle of the road. 
I gathered Tilly up into my arms and brought her into the front yard, setting her down as the truck driver walked over to see what happened. All he could see as I scooped Tilly up was the brunette color of her hair. He was horrified when he realized he had likely hit a young child. As I was sobbing over the warm, lifeless body and yelling for Mary, the fellow put his hands on his chest and fell to the ground. I left Tilly and ran over to him. He was lying face up. I straddled his chest and started cardiac compressions by pushing hard onto his heart, which caused him to take a deep breath, and the poor fellow began breathing in a few minutes. He slowly recovered and remembered where he was. I helped him stand up and assist him back to his truck. I apologized for frightening him, but he was still distraught at having killed our beloved dog. After Tilly died, I realized I couldn't run the dogs on the road and started to make pathways in the hills behind the house. I carried large clippers to build the trail, and Bob and I explored the uninhabited hills. As I followed deer trails up into the surrounding hills, the vegetation changed from shady oak-filled forest to a chaparral-dominated sun-drenched hillside. The oaks evolved in the valleys because of the excess moisture gleaned as the slopes gradually gave up their winter moistness throughout the summer and fall, and the more water-tolerant plants were the ones growing up on the slopes. These plants of the sunnier regions were the same ones I wrote about when I was doing that literature search on California chaparral at USC. The dominant plant is a boring, ugly one called Atostoma, or chemise. Interspersed among these are black sages, woolly blue curls, California lilacs, and bush poppies. All of these plants set out colorful blooms anywhere between January and April. As the weather heats up and the flowers wither, the plants become aromatic as the sun's warmth vaporizes the volatile resins which have developed within the plant over the winter. It smells good, but these volatile compounds are extremely flammable. These plants have adapted to the winter, wet, and summer dry climate of California, including occasional ravages of fire. In fact, most of them need the force of fire destruction to help them rejuvenate. As the branches from these plants pile up over the years, fire is inevitable, and living within chaparral plant communities guarantees this imminent threat will eventually descend upon its inhabitants. One person deciding to start a fire, or two, hastens this inherent flammability of the dead plant buildup. Historically, the natural burns in chaparral occur during lightning storms in winter and spring. The Chumash Indians used fire to remove brush from around oak trees so they could gather acorns to use as a food source. Periodic fires are beneficial. The burning releases the minerals from the old branches back into the soil. Problems are developing, though, because many of those areas have been burned for decades, and the fire fuel level is dangerously high. We were always worried an all-consuming, over-the-top firestorm could happen here. In July of 1985, someone was doing just that, starting fires. The fire began on Monday, July 1st, near Santa Margarita Lake. It was called the Santa Margarita Lake Fire. By July 4th, it was renamed the Las Palitas Fire. Two days later, it became a megafire. On July 6th, the weather improved with higher humidities, and the Las Palitas Fire was declared 40% contained, with full containment expected on Sunday the 7th. However, early on the morning of July 8th, temps increased and winds whipped up dramatically, and the fire was bearing down on the eastern outskirts of the city of San Luis Obispo, threatening the university, getting within a half mile of Slow General Hospital. Resources were rushed in, including 80 companies from LAFD, and the fire stopped before consuming the city. It was declared contained on July 11th and under control on the 15th. It burned 75,000 acres and destroyed 24 buildings and 5 vehicles. Los Angeles Times, 1985 the Las Palitas fire shook up the people on our road, although we were not affected. 
I remember the fire of July 4th. Brother Mike was visiting from Orange County, and we drove up past the end of Wererro Road to watch as the conflagration made its way towards San Luis Obispo. Two weeks later, another fire erupted in an area that became more personal. First noticed four miles away from us, Mary worried the prevailing winds were pushing it in our direction. She called me home from the office. Scott, a neighbor, came to help. The air was cloudy with smoke as the winds forced the fire our way. Scott climbed onto the roof of our house while I cleared brush from below. Once done with the clearing, I climbed atop with another hose. Scott and I were still hosing the roof of the house at about 4.30 in the afternoon when the wall of fire showed itself atop the chaparral-covered hillside next to our house. The flames climbed 30 to 40 feet in the air as they crested the hill. They were about 1,000 yards away and 100 feet up on the hill above us, but I could already feel the heat of the firewall. We're pissing in the wind here, I yelled at Scott. We'd better find cover. Throwing the hoses down, we scrambled to the nearest vehicle. As the flames crept down the hill, the wind suddenly stopped, the fire died down, and the combination of the steep descent with little wind caused the conflagration to stop right there. It was incredible to see a firestorm that size come marching down a hillside and then just lay itself down. After the fiery downhill die-off occurred, a fire truck and its crew were sent over to spend the night watching for any flare-ups. Other fire crews also arrived and used the front yard as an overnight camp and staging area. Residents in our area were becoming tired of a possible arsonist. Carson, neighbor CDF firefighter, said the entire neighborhood is fed up with fires and evacuation. If they find someone who is setting these things off, I don't think there's going to be much left of him to give to the cops. San Luis Obispo Telegram Tribune Once the fire was contained and stamped out, I felt we were more secure because the flammable brush that had built up for many years became non-flammable ash. The hill scorched by the fire had blackened stems jutting out of the ground. The rest of the plant material had fallen to the ground as white-gray ashes to release their nutrients for future growth. The areas burned were safe from a new fire for several years. It was also much easier for me to create jogging trails through the barren landscape of the burned-out hills and along the hilltop paths the bulldozers made for fire breaks. End of chapter. If I could be king, 
even for a day I'd take you as my queen I'd have it no other way I'll be your Thank you all for listening. You can follow my story on my blog, jeadvm.com. Once on the blog's front page, go to the menu, pick my books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book, or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com.